You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Next up on Destination Freedom. Yeah, I have definitely seen that. I've seen people that were just, you know, like from death, people that died to people that had mild disease and people that have this long hauler type of situation, which early on I knew nothing about this. And then there were some patients that virtually I was literally talking to them every week because I was that concerned about them. And those are some of the ones, the ones that were sicker, who are now reporting, hey, I, I feel much better, but I still kind of have this brain fog, and I still feel like things are not quite right. I'm still a little bit fatigued, but they definitely feel much better than they did when they were in the, the thick of it. But it's just lingering, and we have no way of knowing, like, who's going to be the person that's going to have this sustained problem. Welcome to episode 20 of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast. I'm producer director, Danielle Betts. On this episode, we hear my interview with Dr. Terry Richardson, MD. Dr. Richardson received her medical degree from Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, and completed an internship and residency at the University of Colorado Health Science Center in Denver. She worked as an internalist for 17 years at the Eastside Health Clinic in Denver, a clinic whose focus is to serve the underserved community surrounding the clinic before joining Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Richardson's interests include ethnic issues. When describing her philosophy of medicine, she says, I would like to work with patients in order to maximize their health. We discuss COVID-19 issues and the issues of the so-called long horrors of that virus. Next on Destination Freedom, Black Radio Days. Well, we're talking with um, the one and only, as I call her, the one and only Dr. Terry Richardson. Um, She's an MD in Denver, Colorado, and has been practicing medicine for over over two decades. Uh, She's a graduate of Yale School of Medicine. Um, shout out to the Bulldogs here since I'm a graduate of Yale School of Drama. So not quite the same. <laughs> so she has a lot more, lot more clout when it comes to that. Uh, but we wanted to speak with um, Dr. Richardson to talk about not only uh, COVID-19, but many other subjects that I think she is qualified to cover. So welcome to the program. Welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days, Dr. Terry Richardson. Donnie, thank you for inviting me. And I didn't know you went to Yale Drama School. I used to go to some of those plays when I was out there. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, see, yeah. They, so they, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's first talk a little bit about your background. 
And I always ask, like to ask people too, when they're in a profession, what led them to become part of that profession? And you see it as your career track. What led you to medicine? Yeah, sure. You know, I um, was not born in Colorado. I was actually born in Atlanta, Georgia, because my parents were in school there. But they moved uh, to Colorado in the 60s. And we lived in northeast Denver. And I was not one of these uh, womb babies that knew I wanted to be a doctor while, you know, I was in my mother's womb. It wasn't until a junior in high school I had a great anatomy and physiology teacher, Mr. T. And from there, I just said, whoa, I think I want to become a doctor. Um, my family and myself, we were always involved in a lot of community activities. So I didn't know how that would play out later on in my life, but I knew, hey, I want to become a doctor. I didn't really know too much about what that entailed, but I knew you'd help people. And I had that kind of simplistic view, I'm just going to help people. And as I went along my path, I maybe didn't do it always the right way, but I, I kind of kept focus on the prize of becoming a doctor. And it's been really a very fulfilling career. I'm in my 33rd year. Uh, that went uh, that went by kind of quickly, but I just didn't know where, where my path would take me. And in the end here, as I'm near the end of my career, I found that it turned out to be just what I needed and where I should be. I started out at Eastside Health Center, where I tell people I was baptized into medicine. Those patients definitely let me know, honey, you may have the book learning, but we're going to teach you something about <laughs> how to be a real doctor. I'm telling you. So, so I always give a shout out to Eastside Health Center because those patients taught me, honey, that's great. Break it down and know me as a person. Mm. So I really appreciated that. Yeah. So that, uh, I'm glad that you said that because a lot of times um, in my little touch into medicine, I worked at uh, uh, Anchor's Medical Center and Communication. So we're working with med students. And that's what a lot of the, the cases that we would cover is they wanted patients that they could speak to and work with that you could, like I said, break it down. Mm-hmm. Know the person first, know the whole person first, and then let's, we'll, let's get to the medicine, but know the whole person first. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Working at Eastside um, uh, Health Center in Denver, Colorado, is primarily a um, people of color clinic. Am I correct? Correct. At least when I was there, it was uh, heavily African-American. I think it might have changed some, maybe have many more Latinos, although I had some when I was there um, I think I went and I stopped in 2004. So I think it's the demographics have changed some, but it's still mostly people of color. Yes. Yes. And when you said they, they would call you on it, you know, so you probably speaking in medical terms and they said, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. Let's, let's talk about something else. So you think that's what's missing still in medicine? I think in medicine with the electronic medical records and all of that, I think that, some of our younger people may be getting away a little bit from the fact that patients really tell you what their issues are, and they still want to have a connection with you, the doctor, the person. You know, some uh, I, I see sometimes younger people they're just getting you know, typing fast. Everything's in the system, and they kind of sometimes forget about that eye contact and and reading the body language. Uh, some of that stuff may seem old fashioned, but I think you still get a lot from what you see and how a patient is responding. And so we all have to remind ourselves, it's like 
is great to have a computer. You can read all of that. I mean, the writing that we used to have to read in these handwritten charts was, was tough at times. So a lot of things are really better. You have more information readily available, but still the patients are human beings and they need that kind of human interaction. They need to have you looking at them and you sometimes it's a challenge going back and forth to do that, but that's where you're going to get most of the information that you need and talking with the patient and observing their body language. Because sometimes they say more with the body language than they do with the words that they're speaking. And I think that's something I always share with young people when I'm working with young people. It's like, don't forget about the human interaction part of this because you're going to get a whole lot of stuff from that. That brings us right into our subject that we want to cover most today, and that is COVID-19. Being able, not able to interact as much as possible with those patients now that COVID-19, how has that changed the way that you treat and the way that your uh, colleagues treat uh, their patients now today? You know, and I think that these are extremely challenging times. You hear a lot of people saying, great, we have much more use of telehealth. We've been trying to get that as a way to offer more care for more people. And I do think that there are definitely some benefits. We don't want people coming out and exposing themselves, especially our older patients. But sometimes they're the most challenged with telehealth. And, and what I mean by telehealth at Kaiser, we've been having that for a while, but we definitely have expanded the use. But there's just a good old-fashioned talking to somebody on the phone. There's a video visits where you actually are uh, talking with a patient through uh, video and then also just kind of chatting with them on a computer like you do if you're, you know, chatting with a friend. So those are some of the virtual methods. But it can be a challenge if some people just aren't that comfortable with computers, and so you know, they can't get on and do a video visit. And in some instances, how do you really know what's going on if you don't see the person? There's still so much that you can do when you're looking at a person. I had someone recently where they were saying, I think I have X, Y, or Z, and I had them on video, so I said, well, put your head back or put it to the side, stand up, you know, hold out your head. So I was able to do more than if I had been talking to them on the phone, but you still miss a lot of kind of more subtle cues when you're using this methodology. But you have to have a good balance of keeping people safe. So you want to do virtual as much as possible. At Kaiser, where I work now, we still have people coming in when necessary because there's just some instances where you just can't do it with the video technology as it is. We have people calling in, for instance, with skin disorders, and, you know, they'll be on camera, and I'll say, I really can't tell what's going on. Or if people can't get on video and you're doing it purely by phone, sometimes I can hear, oh, your breathing doesn't sound good. But I don't really know, like, they could be doing something that's making their breathing sound like that. Or you just can't feel when someone is down or their mood is depressed. You can't always, like, hear that on the phone. Sometimes you can. So I think there's limitations, and it it puts challenges uh, on both the doctors and the patients. But in the end, with COVID, it's still better to utilize these telehealth methods so that you're keeping people safe. We're 
miles apart, and yet we can communicate. So that's kind of the other beautiful part of it. You don't have to be in the office, and sometimes it's really much better that, you know, you can still communicate and, and yet be so far apart, you know they're going to be protected. Because when they come into our environment, we have people that have the disease that are in our buildings. And so as much as people can be safe and in their homes, that is the best thing right now as we see the rates of COVID are starting to climb. Uh, we want to keep everyone as safe as possible, especially the most vulnerable populations who we know are older people, people with a lot of chronic diseases, and um, unfortunately, we have some disproportionate effect among people of color that if, if we don't get it more, then we die more. So um, telehealth has really been quite beneficial, and um, I'm glad that we do have that, but it's something that I never thought would happen. I'm always like a hands-on person. I want to rub your back. I want to look you straight in the eye. And so it's been a little tougher for me. It's like, oh, I want to touch them. I want to hold their hand. I want (laughs) to give them a hug, you know, but it can't happen. And we understand. But, you know, from the scientific perspective, this is a better way. And it hurts me a little bit because I just love that in-person interaction so much. But video is kind of, you know, it's a little bit like that, but not quite. You don't really feel as much, you know. I can just feel people. I, they generate a lot of stuff when you see them in person that I can kind of feel. So I, I know that's not scientific to people, but I've talked to others, and they say, yeah, I, I feel the same thing, that that part is lacking. We're speaking with Dr. Terry Richardson, uh, internal medicine um, physician with Kaiser Permanente, but has been with other organizations throughout her career over 30 years, and also in, in practice at the clinics at Eastside Clinic, Health Clinic in Denver, Colorado, where she dealt with a lot of patients that were from uh, lower economic status. And now with Kaiser, as you said, you're doing a lot of telemedicine and missing that contact, but, with, but being safer with dealing with COVID patients. Let's talk about the impact that you're dealing with um, uh, COVID-19 now in, the, in your environment, uh, where it's not necessarily on the front lines, where it's not an emergency uh, hospital, but in, in a clinic setting. How is that different, and how is it the same for dealing with, with patients that have COVID-19? Yeah, and so we're kind of like on a different front line. We're not seeing the people that are critically ill all the time. We're seeing all degrees of COVID infection. We're seeing some people that just or have no symptoms at all because that happens a lot. We're seeing the people that have minor symptoms or they're afraid they have symptoms. And then we're seeing people that have more significant symptoms that end up being positive. And we have others who are really suffering from kind of the more long-term thing that a lot of people don't hear about. You hear about the people that die. You hear about that a lot. You hear about the people that maybe that don't have the symptoms. But what I don't think people know a lot about are the people that have these lingering effects from COVID. They were infected. They had a moderate disease, didn't have to be hospitalized. But here, you know, two months later, they're still feeling tired. They still feel like their brain is in a fog. 
So we're seeing all the whole spectrum. And like if someone's critically ill, of course, they go to the hospital and I'm not taking care of them there. But once they get out, some of them are in there for long periods of time. We don't necessarily hear from them when they're in the hospital, but we're hearing from their family members letting us know how they're doing. And one thing that I've been stressed about is, especially early on, is just hearing about some of my patients that died from COVID. And, you know, it was just really shocking because at first we thought COVID was nothing big, you know. And then I started getting um, notices that some of my patients had died. I had not seen them in a while. And, you know, they were sick and they died. And that was just, like, devastating, like, oh, my God, you know this is a really uh, terrible disease. And for a while there, we were getting a lot of calls and a lot of virtual medicine trying to help people understand whether or not they might have had COVID, whether they had anything that suggested they weren't doing well. So we were kind of like triaging some and then working working with some people through this. And then it seems like we got a little lull. I didn't get as many calls of people thinking they had COVID. I didn't have a lot of people that were being positive. But here lately, every day, like multiple calls on people that are positive or think they're positive. Or, so we're still seeing the whole spectrum of those who are asymptomatic but might have been exposed and they want to be tested to those that are having symptoms that sound like they have COVID. So just seeing the whole spectrum except for the hospitalized. But then we do see, I see the patients after they come out of the hospital, and that's where I'm talking about the long-term effects uh, that you see of just continually fatigued, uh, just feeling like the brain is not functioning well, just feeling like the lungs aren't functioning well, and actually some people having maybe even some scarring in their lungs from having had the infection. So that's a little bit of what we're seeing, and um, I don't know all the numbers on, like, the hospital rates, but I do know that uh, African Americans and Latinos have some disproportionate impact from COVID, even here in Colorado, that has a small percentage of blacks and a pretty significant percentage of uh, Latinos living in Colorado. But um, we do see some disproportionate effects there um, with COVID. So, and, and the patient you're speaking about there, there's a term I think they call the long haulers. Is that correct? People yeah, who, 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 the long yeah. haulers. Yes. Yeah. So, and um, you know, speaking to a couple of friends of mine, and one I think you probably know is Reverend uh, Terrence Hughes. Um, he was yeah. saying that times now he still feels like he's in a fog, you know, because he was he mm-hmm. hospitalized for two and a half months and on a ventilator for about two months, and then he spent time um, uh, in rehab, but. Other people have said who were very small, uh, minor symptoms, uh, another friend of mine said the same thing. He's still not able to really adjust to some things uh, when it comes to co- mm-hmm. cognitive thinking. It feels like everything mm-hmm. seems a little bit off. And that's what you're finding as well, too, with your patients that uh, now that are coming back to you? Yeah, I, I have definitely seen that. I've seen people that were just, you know, like from death, people that died to people that had mild disease and people that have this long hauler type of situation, which early on I knew nothing about this. And then there were some patients that virtually I was literally talking to them every week because I was that concerned about them. And those are some of the ones, the ones that were sicker who are now reporting, hey, I I feel much better, but I still kind of have this brain fog and I still feel like things are not quite right. 
I'm a little, still a little bit fatigued, but they definitely feel much better than they did when they were in the, the thick of it. But it's just lingering, and we have no way of knowing, like, who's going to be the person that's going to have this sustained uh, problem. Um, usually it's the people that have more uh, severe disease that I've noticed. The people with milder disease, I have not seen that in a lot of them where they're still months later complaining, but I, you know, made a point to follow a few people just because I was very concerned about them, and they're the ones who continue to have these uh, feelings that their brain is just not functioning, and I know there have been some articles, I haven't had a chance to read them, that talk about the brain fog that's associated with COVID. I have not heard the media talking about that a lot, but there have been quite a few articles uh, written about that and some of the long-hauler uh, symptoms that people are having, people that are beyond like a month into COVID infection, some of the symptoms that they continue to have. And so um, it's just you know, hearing the people talk about it, it's like, wow, I wonder why the media is not talking about this aspect as much, or at least I don't see it on like the mainstream right. media. I started watching more TV since all this started. So the mainstream media like CNN and um, you know, all the, the typical stations, I just don't hear about this quite as much as we're hearing about the number of deaths and the number of cases. Well, Dr. Um, Richardson, that, that's why I'm here. Addressed it, son. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's why I'm here. So <laughs> I, can let, I can let our audience know and other people know because uh, you're right, it's not being covered because that's a, it, it's not as sexy, uh, to use the term, uh-huh. uh, to talk about, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the deaths or extremely important we want people to know that so that they take care of themselves and maybe the government can government can react some kind of way and speaking about that you share with me that you've been dealing with a part of the some one of the studies or the trials with uh with vaccine can you expound on that a little bit more for us yeah actually i'm not working particularly with the trials but you know um The vaccine has gotten a lot of press here lately. There's two companies, Pfizer and Moderna, that were reporting some of the results of their vaccine trials. But even before that, I was starting to do some work with people around the vaccine and really trying to figure out how we can educate and talk to the community about vaccines. So I'm um, in a pilot project with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment Uh, vaccine equity champions. And what we're doing with that is trying to meet with various groups to see what people's tensions and questions are around the vaccine. So when a vaccine is fully available, would people get it? If they don't want to get it, why don't they want to get it? What are some of the things? And we know for our uh, people of color communities, particularly the black community, there's been some uh, mistrust because, you know, rightfully so for things like Tuskegee, uh, for Henrietta Lacks, we know at Tuskegee, um, they didn't give those men syphilis. Like some people have said, hey, they gave them syphilis. No, they had syphilis. What they did was to follow them rather than treat them when a treatment was available. And so that created a tremendous amount of distrust. You know, Henrietta Lacks, they took her cells, didn't tell her family, her family you know, is not profiting from what they're able to do with those cells to this day. So those types of things and many other things have created a uh, mistrust in the black community in particular. And so that mistrust carries over to a lot of things that we try to do in medicine. 
And I have to say, frankly, that I am not a vaccine person per se. I don't like taking vaccines, but I get my flu shot. And when the COVID comes out for general purpose use, I am going to be in line to get that vaccine because I think that is something that can help us get uh, to a state of normality when it comes to COVID. And I know that people, some people already say, I'm not going to get it. And there have been surveys both here in Colorado and nationwide that said, just in general, half the people said, no, I would not get the vaccine. Um, and then among African-Americans with Colorado Black Health Collaborative, you know, I volunteer with them. We did our own COVID impact survey, and we found that about uh, 49% of people said they would get the vaccine. So that's something to know. And then why are people not wanting to get the vaccine? That's something that we're working on. Um, I do believe that the black community in particular, the black scientists have done a great job of uh, having discussions about this and why the vaccine is important and what the involvement has been of black people. And one thing I recently learned is one of the developers of the Moderna vaccine is a African-American woman um, with, I think she's with the NIH. I can't remember that part, but I was uh, happy to see that, you know, she is intricately involved with that. And we do need, and we have other groups like the National Medical Association, the Black Medical Doctors that represent, you know, thousands of uh, black doctors. They're very intricately involved with these companies and helping to, to look at their materials. Uh, they're helping to recruit people to be in the clinical trials. And I think all this will help me feel more comfortable when I'm trying to talk with people about why it might be important. But in the end, it's a personal choice. People have freedom to take the shot or not. But I have patients that are already asking me, do you think it would be good to get the vaccine? What do you think? And I'm saying, yes, I do, and I will get it. So I'm going to put my bias out there like that now, and you can ask me more if you want because I've been studying this. I've been participating. I've been talking to real people about their thoughts on this. So I know nationwide, uh, the <clears throat> it went from 21% who said they would not take the vaccine to 49%. That was the latest, as we do this recording, um, that was the latest stat. So I'm glad to hear that mm -hmm. um, in Colorado, 49% of people of color will take the vaccine. Is that correct? Did I hear you correctly when you said that? From your study. And that was a survey, that was a survey, survey. that Colorado Black Health Collaborative did. But yes. CDPHE also did a survey, and they said 53% of the blacks they surveyed said they would get the vaccine. Okay, all right. That's, so, that's, that's you know, enough. at least that, to me, that's kind of positive. Yeah, yeah it is positive, yes, yeah. absolutely. Because yeah. as you said, there are all kind of things that have happened in the past and currently that cause people of color to have pause about taking anything from the medical community or especially from the from the national community because of Tuskegee, because of Henrietta Lats and, and different examples like that that have caused people to say, why? Why should we do this since we've always been guinea pigs from the beginning, from, from enslavement up until today? So I'm glad to see with this um, two vaccines, hopefully that are going to be available to the general public by the end of the year, at least until 2021, it should be available, that they will be willing to take an eye for one and speaking for are uh, you listening to destination freedom black radio days and you're also listening to dr terry richardson uh um, <clears throat> internal medicine physician with kaiser permanente in denver colorado that she would take it 
as a medical profession, she would take it. Someone who does not believe in, uh, not not believe, but just doesn't like to take vaccines and shots herself, uh, found that very interesting that you be in a position yourself that you don't like to do that as well. But this is something that's really important to the general population and especially to community of color who's been uh, disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 uh, in the past and continues to be. So uh, we as a people need to step up and make sure that we are protected and we protect our, our community and our children and our loved ones. So um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Richardson, uh, so in the coming, coming months, in the coming years, how can we be able to prepare ourselves uh, to combat um, COVID-19 and other infected diseases like this that will impact our community? Yes, and I would say there there's several things. There's kind of the prevention, and then there's the other. Um, one thing I would say is prevention-wise, right now I would encourage people to continue to use masks and use them properly. Um, I see lots of people that are have a mask, but it's around their chin, like they're wearing it like a chin strap. <laughs> it needs to be yes. up over the nose, brother. It's got to be up <laughs> over the nose. Because, <laughs> because I mean, the virus loves to go up the nose. It can go in the mouth. It can go up the nose. It can go in the eye. But it loves the nose. Mm. And, you know, so cover the nose up. So use it properly. It doesn't do you any good to have it around your chin. Practice uh, physical distancing. Uh, people that know me know I don't like the term social distancing because we're social people, you know. And so we, I like to say physical distancing or socializing from a distance to six feet. And we know this virus can actually go beyond six feet, but, you know, for the most part, you're going to have the heaviest load within those six feet. So try to stay six feet apart. And if you don't have to go out, don't go out. Wash your hands. If you don't have soap and water, use some hand sanitizer and wash your hands frequently, but mostly try to wear the mask and stay separate. So that's one form of trying to prevent it and reducing your exposures. I mean, I've heard all kinds of cases where people were, I usually wear a mask, but I was just going to run in, and then I was like, no, wear your mask all the time. And then the other part of prevention is, trying to keep our bodies as healthy as possible. Some of the reason why they feel that blacks and other people of color are more impacted is due to the existence of chronic diseases like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, lung disease. And unfortunately, these diseases disproportionately affect um, people of color, including black people. And so I tell people to try to be, even if you do have some of these chronic diseases, Try to make sure you're working with your doctor to have the diseases in control. And then you do have some control of your environment. We know that sometimes people don't have enough money to really get healthy, nutritious foods, but do the best you can if you can get frozen as opposed to canned and make sure they're vegetables. Eat a lot of vegetables. That helps maximize your immune function. Is eating a wide variety of vegetables, even if they're frozen. You know, we say the uh, colorful plate is what you're shooting for. I don't believe you have to be a vegetarian. You can eat some meat, but limit that and have some of the good fishes like salmon if you can get that. But um, fruits and vegetables are definitely key. That can help your immunity. Make sure you're getting adequate sleep. You can, for the most part, have some control over how much sleep you can get. Shoot for seven or eight hours. 
try to get a little sun just because that can release some positive uh, hormones in your body that can help your mood. I mean, this isolation and hearing about death, that's taking our mood down. And if your mood is down and you're not exuding some of these hormones, that can make you sicker. So try to take care of your mental health. Mental wellness is key. That, uh, that's a preventive measure. The other piece I like to talk about is if you have any type of symptoms, especially right now where you have colds, you have the cold that's coming through, you've got the flu, and you have COVID, if you have any symptoms, any questions, be sure to reach out. If it's the flu, that's one thing. If it's a cold, that's one thing. If it's COVID, that's a really big thing because people can get very, very sick uh, with COVID and it could be very fast. It can be fatal, more so than some of these other diseases. We know people still die from flu. People rarely die from the common cold, but people do die from the flu. But COVID is like um, much more deadly than any of these other things that you may encounter. So just make sure to stay connected with the health system. And um, working with Colorado Black Health Collaborative, we do have a couple of what we're calling B-chart educators that can that you can call and they can uh, help educate you around COVID. They can connect you with resources. So that's something that we've done to try to help support the community. And we'd encourage people to take advantage of things like that that are going on in the community, some of the testing sites, some of the folks that are trying to provide resources, around COVID, there's people that are doing things around food access and, you know, job issues. So I think our community should take advantage of all these things that are occurring right now. So those are some of the things that come to mind and talking about trying to take care of ourselves during COVID. Oh, that's great information. Dr. Tara Richardson, Kaiser Permanente, internal uh, physician, and also just, a, I think, a great individual who is a loving, caring physician. Uh, she talked about kind of, I guess some people call it old school now, where she wanted to reach out and touch her patients and make sure they're okay at all times. Great information we just received from you. Uh, thank you for being our guest on Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast. And uh, we'll speak to you again. And this information that you shared at the end, we'll make sure it's on our website and on KGNU's website. And uh, so that people can click on and get information that they need. Take care of yourself. You know, as people always say, take care of us. You take care of yourself, Dr. Richardson. Yes, I really appreciate um, you allowing me to come on and share with the community. I love my people. That's what I'm dedicating my life to. And it's going pretty well here. This is a bad disease, but it's allowed me to just be more educated and informed and think about ways to, to get messages to our community. Thank you again, Dr. Terry Richardson, and this is Destination Freedom. That concludes this episode of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. I'm producer-director, Danielle Betts. The 2020 season will examine the issues facing communities of color, exploring police shootings, immigration, health disparities, and gender bias. Support for Destination Freedom is provided by the Bonfee Stanford Foundation, the Ulipians Fund of the Denver Foundation, Arts and Society, and Karen and Johnny Klein. Destination Freedom Black Radio Days is produced by Danielle Betts. The series is remixed by Maurice Smith, a.k.a. Reese. Make sure you check us out at NoCredits.com and pick up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Radio Public, Spotify, etc. Follow us at Twitter at Donnie Betts 
Hashtag No Credits Production LLC. Hashtag Black Radio Days. Hashtag Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.